0: And then you get to the Australian miners and it becomes a game of, well, who's partnered with who? And for us, as an example, a concrete example for investors, you know, we bought into Azure which has that very promising discovery up at Andover. But, you know, if you look at it and, and you ask yourself the question, as we
1: did, well, maybe we should look- Well, that's because SQM had already taken 19.99%. Like, who are the real winners in the commodity game as a result of the IRA. I think there will be winning partnerships, if you will, across the supply chain
0: at the margin because South Korea is the second biggest battery manufacturer. I think you've got to see them take share from China. There was a bifurcation of of prices for rare earths in China and what it it led to was a natural market mechanism where if you could smuggle rare earths out of China and achieve a high international price, you would.
1: G'day money miners. Today is Thursday, 3rd of August
2: i got the wonderful uh, Jonas Dawling in the house with me today. JD, how are you? I'm doing well. I think it's glaringly obvious that Matty Michael is out of the office today. Trev, how are you going, mate? Very well, mate. Surprisingly, Matty not here and there was no state of origin uh, yesterday. So he's just, um,
1: yeah, uh, no excuse really for for this uh, poor performance, Matty Michael. very, Very disappointed. But we've got a great guest today, don't we?
2: Yeah, we've got a bit of a treat for the Money Miners. So we are interviewing... Kingsley Jones, he's the founder of Jevons Global. He's got quite an interesting background, so PhD in theoretical physics, studied physics and maths more broadly. He's had various roles as head of quantitative trading at Alliance Bernstein, also co-head of international equities at Macquarie Funds. So yeah, he's come from quite a scientific fact-based, sort of as he'll elaborate on in the discussion background. And, yeah, he's just got some great, interesting takes across the critical metals space, across various things like the IRA, smelting, a whole bunch of different things. So I really enjoyed this one.
1: Yeah, you can tell he absolutely thinks really deeply about the landscape of critical minerals, how how the markets for each of them are evolving, Um, and nothing is playing more into that than the geopolitical dynamics right now, which um, unfolds in this conversation, which was an absolute... Delight, um, and so I hope um, the money miners enjoy this one. Shout out to uh, Terra Capital partners of our show. Thank you very much, Terra Capital, bringing this podcast to your ears and and hopefully your screens as well. Great fund managers out there, and and according to Maddie Michael, also winners of the best mug to appear in the AFR. That's it. Thanks, guys. We've lost Matthew Michael, so um, but we've gained someone a lot smarter than Maddie anyway. So I think I think we'll be okay <laughs> on this one today. We've got. Uh, We've got the pleasure of talking with Kingsley Jones. And now, Jada, you've been reading a bit of uh, Kingsley stuff on Livewire. He's had a bit of an active presence. I know, um, you know, he pops his face up on certain uh, Asian broadcast um, stations as well. So I think we're going to have a pretty interesting discussion today about critical minerals more than anything else and all of the things relating to that sector, both macro and micro.
2: Yeah, I'm super excited. Like you said, uh, Kingsley's done a lot of writing on Livewire, speaks on various channels, so I'm super excited to to have him on the program. Kingsley, how are you? Fantastic. Good to be here. Great. So why don't we start nice and broadly and you just give a bit of an introduction on yourself and Jevons Global, the firm you founded and what you guys are all about.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you. So uh, at Jevons Global, uh, I founded the firm when I left Macquarie Group uh, back in 2011 and my background uh, is about twenty five years in the industry. I didn't start in finance. I actually started in of all places in physics. Uh, and what drew me into finance was obviously the opportunities uh, you know, to invest globally. And, and I had been doing that actually before I entered the industry with my wife just you know, on our personal account. So so that's my background. Finance wasn't uh, my first choice, if you will, uh, but it's something that I found to be very interesting. So uh, when I set up the company, uh, as I mentioned, I'd been with um, Macquarie Group. I'd been co-leading the international equities team and we ran a a series of different so-called thematic portfolios globally. So these days thematics is a a pretty common way to invest. Uh, Back then it wasn't so much. And and the way that we interpret uh, thematic investing is you really have a look at some of these longer term trends uh, and you try to um, understand industry structure, value chains, uh, supply-demand balances and the like, and just zero in on what you think will be some good core holdings and also perhaps some good trading positions. So I'd started doing that at Macquarie Group, period 2008, 2011. And the segue into um, how we founded Jevons was, uh, you know, of course, uh, in the period 2011, the former commodity cycle started to peter out a little bit and, and I was looking for some new opportunities. So um, I set up this company with a view that we'd be able to take a bit of a deeper dive for the longer term uh, on some of these thematics um, outside of the you know the product-driven environment uh, that we have in uh, mainstream funds management. So that's us. We're a small company. We're based in Canberra these days. Uh, there's two of us in the firm. It's actually my wife and partner who, who helps me with the other part of, of the business. Uh, we have client base now uh, extending back over five years uh, in uh, model portfolios. So we've picked... Stocks and and suggest portfolios for independent advisors. Uh, they buy those and they pay us for that service. Uh, we've been doing that in Australia for some time, and and our hope is next year we'll get our first global one up and running. And uh, you mentioned Livewire, and I have been, you know, going back into my past, as it were. I used to actually write research for Credit Suisse all the way back in two thousand and one through two thousand and two, um, and we've been doing some research pieces on critical minerals just to give people who are maybe independent investors, self directed, uh, a, a good read on on some of these important uh things that are easy to miss uh when you're understanding this kind of complex area with all these exotic minerals, the geopolitics, uh you know, the the market demand
2: and the like. Kingsley, I'm keen to dive deeper into that that background you have. So I, I noticed you'd studied theoretical physics, so a very scientific-based background. And I want to hear how you balance that super fact-based scientific background with the more qualitative, you know, storytelling nature of investing and, you know, us ultimately all being humans in this market.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, you will appreciate being over there in, in Perth, uh, you know, right at the heart of this uh, critical minerals. Minerals, boom. They're uh, yeah, all the hot areas, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, the the hard science actually matters. I mean, we know that. I mean, that's why we have, you know, jork reports and, um, you know, geologists droning on about their the drill uh, hits and the like. Um, but equally, we also do need to engage with investors about the why of it. And so the way I balance that, you know, with a scientific background with the need to, shall we say, market uh, what we do is, is really through... Uh, a device that I haven't shared too much publicly, but we aim to do so going forward. And this is doing the equivalent of a GDP analysis. You look at the actual revenues that are associated with a mineral commodity. Uh, you figure out what the concentration is in terms of, you know, how many mitres are there and what market share is attached to a particular country, a particular province, uh, you know, a particular um, company. Um, and then you try to um, relate that to, uh, to the opportunity. So you explain to people, look, some things are steady eddies like iron ore, you can be volatile, huge market. You've got to have some of that. portfolio. Uh, lithium's emerging to be a major growth dynamic. So if you're looking at uh, revenue growth within a commodity, I mean, that's really spectacular right now. And then some of these other areas uh, like vanadium, you know, they wait in the wings. Um, and we need to explain to people that they have a lot of promise with uh, redox flow batteries but it's still about 95% of the market is a steel additive. Uh, so most of the market is growing in line with steel. So what we try to do there is just tell those stories, make them relatable, relate them to dollars and cents, and give people a few anchors about you know what the map of the world looks like in terms of where you want to go, and also what the economic map looks like in terms of
2: where you'd put pins on the map to find dollars underground. And, and so most of the people that we've spoken with in the past have a sort of mining engineering background or, you know, finance type background. What, what's the attraction to commodities and to mining for you coming from your background?
0: It's really the, the the analytical, um, dimension of, if you have a scientific background and you get familiar, you get over that hurdle, we all have to get over the hurdle in mining of all the jargon and understanding, you know, um, what it all means, um, and attaching importance to drill results and the like. Uh, but that's a pretty quantitative discipline, so it's quite natural for anyone who sticks at it, uh, who has a scientific background, to, to get over that hurdle. But beyond that, even folks who are in the mining industry themselves are sometimes going to struggle in getting their hands around the equally important market dimension, like who are we going to sell to, where are they, um, and you know how eager are those people to buy the commodities as a as final product. And that's where the combination of, uh, you know, in my case, a quantitative background in physics, the ability to get the data, but also to represent it and analyze it in ways that speak to the meaning, the importance, the economic significance of the commodities. That's the key attraction for me. And and we find a gap in the
1: market doing that. This, uh, most folks aren't really looking at the world in this way. I think understanding that market dynamic is, you know, an ever increasing part of the toolkit, especially as all these niche commodities become a lot more mainstream um, with some of the mega trends that are happening. And you talked about starting, you know, your business um, basically on, on the backstop of trying to anticipate some of these thematics. Back in 2011, like, what were the thematics you were interested in? We got introduced
0: to them by our client base. So if, if I may go back to those days, You know, beginning 2008, I had joined Macquarie from a different investment group where I'd actually been doing a completely different thing. I'd been managing global trading research for them. That was my qualitative background, but I'd been working in portfolio teams and I knew quite a lot about this area. So I joined Macquarie to set up um, some largely quantitatively driven um, investment portfolios across four key thematics, Um, infrastructure, which is kind of obvious for Macquarie, minerals and energy, which is a great global area for Australians to play and agriculture which is maybe not so well understood but in a farm to fork context that's really good globally um and we also did climate change you know renewable energy and, and different equipment uh, things and through that uh, experience i had been introduced to clients in japan we won some money out of japan uh, to run a minerals and energy portfolio and we had other japanese clients who at that time remember this is 2010 2011 uh were extremely concerned about um Losing access to the rare earth complex, uh, where Japan uses those to make magnets, a whole bunch of other things, uh, and in the uh, China-Japan crisis about the Senkoko islands affair, uh, all ancient history now, uh, China had limited export of rare earths, and so the prices just went crazy. You know, if, uh, I'm sure everyone's aware on, on who's listening, but you know that period, 2010, 2011, prices just went to the moon, uh, and we had uh, clients in Japan who wanted me and my team uh, to develop what the Japanese then called a rare metal strategy. So we had to be be careful here. Rare metals is not just rare earths to a Japanese investor. It's the equivalent of what now we call critical minerals. So there's all kinds of different terminology flying around, but they're basically the same thing. Uh, And in trying to help those clients build their investment strategy, uh, I and my team, we invented a, a simple little tool where we constructed a commodity GDP I mean, it's really simple and people don't do it. <laughs> uh, but what you do is you get a good data source, you multiply out the tons by the average price and you get the revenue. And then you deflate that by you know, an a, a inflation measure. So what you're actually doing at a global scale is the equivalent of figuring out, well, how big is the GDP of Brazil? You're figuring out how big is the GDP of iron ore or lithium or, or whatever. And when we looked at the world through that lens, Everything became a whole lot clearer in terms of where you needed to put your effort. So the critical minerals, as 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 we all know, they're very very important, uh, but few of them uh, represent a large part of the commodities pie, if you will. Um, And certain of them uh, have a very small share of pie, but they're very necessary for advanced applications, as such as we've heard. And this is what the Japanese were concerned about, right? You know, making sure that they had enough rhenium, for example to go in turbine blades for for a jet fighter for, um, was one application. So once you understand that, uh, you can then focus in on where you think the right places to invest are and what the right strategies are for investment. So obviously for rare earths, you can mine those, but as we all know, you've got to separate them and that's really quite difficult. Um, and so that becomes a critical factor for that group of minerals. For other things, like I mentioned with rhenium, it's a tertiary product of copper smelting. So you gotta produce the copper, then you gotta produce the molybdenum off the back of your copper smelter, and then off the back of the molybdenum you produce the radium. Um and and so therefore there are all these sort of interesting little niche opportunities that relate to how you get different minerals. So that's the basic thing. We were introduced to the whole rare metals complex by the Japanese. Uh, we went down that rabbit hole, realized that it was a it was a thing, uh, and that it would require development of different ideas about how to You know identify where the real
2: opportunities were. kingsley before we go even even deeper into the sort of commodity complex i'm keen just to get your thoughts on the broader macro setup we've got at the moment so obviously in the us there's been a huge wave of interest predominantly in in big tech and ai driven and i just noticed you've written a few parts on this so keen to hear a bit about what you think of the the broader macro environment perhaps tying in interest rates into all of this just to start us out
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I first entered the finance industry in 96. So, you know, I was, you know, I, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I was, I think in my early 30s back back in, in, in that at that time. And I was looking for, a, 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 if you will, a career change, a different career, because I've been in scientific research a long time. Uh, and back then, the reason for mentioning this is that, you know, we were just really in the middle of this long period of interest rate decline. And back when I had finished high school and gone into uni in the early eighties, you know, that's when interest rates were 18%. Crazy numbers, uh, that sort of thing. And so we've had this long, long period where interest rates have just been steadily declining. And our belief, you know, with the macro is that basically that's done now. Um, so the really big question is whether we're going back into, heaven forbid, uh, a repeat of the my childhood with nineteen seventies and stagflation. I don't think so, actually. Um Or we're going to find a new happy medium with a new level for interest rates uh, that just goes sideways for some time. I think it's probably the latter. And I think that with the rise of geopolitics and competition between the United States and China, one of the big drivers for that happy medium, if you will, is the unhappy medium of this contest. (laughs) And, And what's likely to happen there is that China's not a particularly inflationary economy. If anything, it's a deflationary economy. And that's what we've seen. Whereas the United States is running up against capacity constraints because they don't have a lot of domestic manufacturing, for example. And therefore, you're seeing price rises across the board. You're also seeing protectionism with new tariffs in the United States and elsewhere because they fear you know, losing too much control or ceding too much control to China for, for essential items. Uh, and, and so the world, we hope, doesn't divide into two blocks. But what is happening is that you know, you have this upward pressure on prices from tariffs uh, in the developed world and reshoring, which is expensive. And you have this downward pressure on prices from places like China that then expand out into the emerging markets and, you know, build their new factories in other places, you know, Vietnam or, or, or somewhere like that, or indeed in Africa. No, Excuse me. If I hear you- so,
1: oh, Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You, if please. I hear you correctly, it's the- um. It, it... It's less the monetary regime right now that's going to have the the, the vast um, you know, the most significant force on, on the commodity markets. It's it's the geopolitical regime. <laughs>
0: oh, absolutely! Yeah, that would be the that's the succinct way to say what I just said. Uh, that's absolutely right. No, you you nailed it. Um, we're not talking about a period which spans most of my adult life, which was the dominance of central bank monetary policy. If anything, we're entering a new period. Uh, which is in some ways similar to what I remember from earlier days, but in many ways completely different. Um, and the completely different element is that you have these very large populations in China, in India, and elsewhere in Africa um, that are moving up the curve in wealth um, that represent relatively underutilized factors of production, labor, land, uh, commodities. They're coming into the economy at the margin. And because that part of the world, is, is sort of being driven by China India as big consumers uh, that puts downward pressure on 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 some prices by bringing new factors in uh, but you also have the upward pressures that come from you know the energy transition and other things so the net net of that should be a more stable environment we think um we hope <laughs> um but but you know that's not going to involve central banks as really setting saying scene. Increasingly, it's going to be fiscal stimulus, as we see in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Whatever turns up in China, uh, we're still waiting to see the exact shape of that. But government becomes more important, industry policy becomes more important, Uh, monetary policy less important. Uh, And entrepreneurialism, we would say, probably really is going to rule the roost here in terms of fighting your way through this maze of conflicting currents that I mentioned. but ultimately, got to set price structure.
2: Kingsley, you wrote a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek comment in one of your your wires not too long ago that you spend every waking hour fighting a torrent of disinformation from, you know, incred- incredibly well-financed national security think tanks, and that's as it relates to critical minerals. I want to hear what the the most frustrating parts about the disinformation that you hear out there are.
0: Yeah. It's it is, as you gathered from my verbiage, uh it, it, you know, it's a topic close to heart. Uh and and part of the reason for that, for full disclosure, is you know, in my earlier career I did spend time in in, in military research. Uh so I was a research scientist uh, in Australia at one of the facilities down in Melbourne a Fisherman's Bend. In those days I worked on uh, you know, modelling um, you know, different military assets like uh helicopters for the Navy. So I'm not unfamiliar with where the national security voice is coming from. Um, uh, the only real gripe that I have, and that's what I was referring to with, you know, the disinformation, is that a lot of these folks are very focused on a very small uh, slice of the global commodities eye for any given commodity. So take rare earths for for instance. There's been a study in the United States which shows that U.S. military demand is tiny. You know, it's, it's measured as 1% or 2% of total demand, uh, and the size of plant that would be needed to satisfy U.S. military demand for national security purposes is probably smaller than the plant that Linus is going to build uh, with some Defense Department money in the United States. So the main concern that I have is that if we devote too much attention to national security, um, we'll fail to recognize that it's only a tiny sliver of the market. So most of the critical minerals that are going to be produced uh, going forward will be for civilian uses in civilian markets like electric vehicles, and so we need to make sure that we're not distracted by putting too much emphasis on what the military needs as opposed to what society in general needs. Um, otherwise, what's likely to happen is the military will get very concerned about access to one or other mineral like gallium or germanium. Uh, and the demand is so small that they'll be very easily satisfied <laughs> with a very small smelter addition uh, of a circuit to extract germanium or gallium from a U.S. smelter like they are in Clarkson, United States. Uh, and that once the military is satisfied, their interest in the policy is going to disappear <laughs> because they have what they want. That's not going to work for business. So I think that because 98% or more of minerals demand globally. Is for commerce, we should have a higher emphasis on the commercial aspects. And that means that recognizing, for instance, that Australia right now with electric vehicles, 89% in the latest data that was released for imports of electric vehicles, 89% of those were China origin, and that market share is growing. So if we're too busy identifying national security risks from trading with China uh, in minerals, we'll forget. That we're trading with China in finished product, uh, in electric vehicles, in solar panels, uh, in wind turbines and the like, batteries. Uh, and, and we'll just miss the point. We, we want to put too much attention on very small plants that the military needs and not anywhere near enough attention on what we need to grow the economy. And and then you lose your national security because you spend all this time talking about small threats in small markets and you've completely ignored development of capacity and capability, know-how expertise, application of capital building plants in Australia or elsewhere uh, business relationships because you just spent
1: too much time talking about the roll tick. Kingsley earlier you touched on that dynamic back in you know 2011 where it was the um the the export policies between. Japan and China that really incentivized this um, uh, upstream rare earth uh, market you know, culminating in the development of linus 's Mount Weld and enormous company that 's since become and to me that kind of dynamic it was you know on a micro scale you had this these geopolitical tensions between China and another country um, in a commodity where there was concentration in China previously it resulted in um, you know, two different price points for a commodity selling into two different locations. Yeah, I think about that dynamic and I wonder if there are analogues between what we can learn back then in relation to that very small specific closed market and what the world's going to be looking at going forward in relation to the ramifications of the IRA. I'm curious to get your thinking on that one.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that is that's the question. I think that's what investors need to, to, to work out. And I can't claim to have perfect foresight or insight on on these questions, and and they will sometimes be a bit contentious. But but let me provide you with a perspective on the 2010 2011 rare earth crisis, which of course I was living through in discussions with Japanese prospects. Um, that there's a couple of things that are headlines there. One is of course, you know, this was basically China, um, you know, was slapping the face to Japan over a territorial dispute. And and we could have way more of those going forward because we know that territorial disputes are front and center for, for tension between China and the uh, United States, for example, or Taiwan, for that matter. Um, but 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 the thing is that whilst it started that way, uh, and ultimately a successful challenge by other nations in the World Trade Organization was China to just cease doing what they were doing at that time. What's easy to forget is that. Both Japan and China learned a lot from that episode, and they moved forward with a constructive strategy on both sides. So, so firstly, the constructive strategy from Japan was to say, "Well, why are we so reliant on China? Why don't we just, you know, develop new sources like Linus?" And that's how Linus got into business. And the constructive ch- strategy from China was to realize that actually, w- when they imposed those export quotas, is they is how they did it. Um, they actually fractured their own market because what happened was that, um, they mechanism was to say, we will limit the amount of rare earths that is qualified for export. Right. And there's two different pricing structures that go with that. There's free on board, which means, yeah, you've you passed customs, you've passed this, you passed that, that commodity is ready to ship to go internationally. And then there's X works, which means the factory. Now, normally these two things, these two prices, they only differ by insurance and other items. Uh, But in this particular circumstance, they were wildly different. And what happened was the the X-Works price went down and the free on board price went up. And the difference was entirely this regulatory nonsense uh, from China of artificially restricting export. Um, So it had very damaging effects internally in China. Um, and because saving face is important, it took the Chinese a long time to admit that, uh, but we don't think they're going to make the same mistake going forward. So, for example, with MP materials in the United States, I've written on this before and Um, you know, the Mountain Pass mine uh, was gotten back into production, um, you know, around 2017. And, and there was Chinese capital that helped with that through um, And initially, when they brought that US mine back into production, it, it didn't have enough buyers domestically in the US. Because the US is a little bit sort of further back in this process than Japan was back in 2010, 2011. So the only way that they could get that US mine back up and running was to do a deal with Shenghe, the Chinese company, um, to send the material into China for processing. And in fact, that's what's been happening. Um, and now, thankfully, uh, you know, Shenghe and MP, uh, they have a relationship. Shenghe um, is not obstructing MP uh, from sending that material elsewhere if MP can find it by. So, that material is now coming back out of the Chinese market and going into the Japanese market. And soon it'll be going into the US market. So, we think there are more constructive developments um, as a result of that former crisis. But that doesn't stop the fact that right now we've got a gallium germanium crisis uh, because of the whole semiconductor thing. So, this tit for tat is the big risk uh, in the trade war between US and China. That whilst we might be out of the woods with the rare earth threat, we now have a different one in a different commodity. And that could continue in other, you know, critical minerals like indium, for example, similar to germanium and gallium, has a very important role in semiconductors. The Chinese don't have as big market share in that, but if they blocked indium, that would cause the next round of the same problem. So we do have to be very mindful of, um, you know, these geopolitical factors as they play out in the market.
2: Kingsley, on the topic of the Inflation Reduction Act that Trav just brought up, we, something we have been hearing a lot about is a potential bifurcation in prices. And some people that we've spoken with have even seen that you're seeing this already in terms of payability that mines are receiving. Do, do you have a take on the bifurcation of prices and kind of specifically as it relates to what the Inflation Reduction Act is bringing about with you know, their incentives
0: yeah, I do, and I can I can relate that directly back to what I said before. There was a bifurcation in of, of prices for rare earths in China, and what it, what it led to was a natural market mechanism where if you could smuggle rare earths out of China and achieve the high international price, you would. Um, and normally that would close up the price gap, but it was being made held artificially high uh, be, because of the quota system, which eventually the Chinese are well. So if you fast forward to the Inflation Reduction Act and some of these measures on you know, what will be qualifying material to go into a battery uh, under the measures there to earn the tax credit in production, um, and that maybe incentivizes production, uh, you know, for, I don't know, lithium that comes from a free trade agreement country with the United States, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see effects where material is routed, uh, your material might be, might be sourced as a result um, from an FTA country. Um, and, and and that can produce in the short term a, a potential premium uh, for material, uh, but then the arbitrage kicks in uh, into new areas where you know it might look good for Australia at the beginning because we have an FTA, um, but if it's possible to bring in production in another FTA country like Chile, but not Argentina, uh, then uh, you know you can have a shift of capacity into those areas and. It's not obvious how that will play out in this market. So, to give you an example, Chile has an FTA into the United States and therefore qualifies, but Chile is also a very attractive destination for Chinese capital. So, BYD, uh, the Chinese automaker, is building plants in Chile. Um, and so, you may find a situation where countries that have good relations with China, in respect of being open to Chinese investment, but who also have an FTA with the US, are actually able to generate opportunity shipping to both parties. And, th- and this is what we call kind of an intraprot, so-called um, environment, where as often it often happens when you have trade restrictions, um, those nations that are open to trade with either party in, in the dispute are actually the winners. The, 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 the parties that align themselves only with one buyer have artificially reduced their market share. So in in the short term they may succeed, but in the long term they probably won't get the benefit of it, because trade flows will divert, as it's called. Stephen Roach in the AFR is a you know well-known economic commentator. He he wrote as much I think it was yesterday on trade diversion as a result of um, trade um, uh, tariffs, and and how for example, you know Mexico was replacing China as a major. Um, exported to the United States but on the other side Mexican imports from China were rising so instead of the the former trade China-US it's China-Mexico Mexico-US and you'll see lots of versions of that we think uh, so it's not bad for Australia but we may not necessarily have the positioning in the marketplace to be the ultimate beneficiaries of that effect to the best or highest degree it's more likely to be a nation like Chile or a nation like uh Mexico possibly, or indeed Morocco, where we're seeing investment because they have an FTA. So they are important things to think, bear in mind in the context of how the Inflation Reduction Act and other US measures are structured around you know where the material can come from to qualify to be included in
1: that system. So ultimately, you know, in your mind, because commodities at, at their you know, core are fungible, there'll be arbitrages that, despite the fact that you have. Different, different incentives in different countries, um, opportunistic arbitrages will find a way to, to find a middle ground. So I guess I'm curious sort of with that thesis, like who are the real winners in the commodity game as a result of the IRA? And I'm talking not just country level, but more like what types of projects are going to be the real winners?
0: Yeah. Now yeah, that's a great question. So um, let's take lithium because it's the one that I'm closest to right now. Um, I think because, okay, headline. This market is growing at a great rate. You know, I think McKinsey was saying 20%, KGAR, you know, who cares? The number's somewhere between 10 and 20%. It's significantly higher than it used to be at 8%. And that's because EVs are now, you know, the dominant source of demand and batteries, the dominant use for lithium at over 80%, according to the US Geological Survey. So when you get into that analysis of who the winners will be and so on, is a market that's growing at a really high rate. Where historically Australia has really been trading places with Chile to be the number one producer. And let's remember, when you ask the question, types of asset, Chile, as people will know, is is brines, you know, salt pans. Um they can take a long time to bring into production because you have to qualify the material. Australia's hard rock, where we do some processing onshore, we've got terrific opportunities for more downstream processing in Australia. But we also have to be clear. The cost structure of doing that processing in somewhere like China, somewhere like South Korea, is probably better. Um, And and so, therefore, when you talk about winners, I think there'll be winning partnerships, if you will, across the supply chain. Um, And so, you might want to put flags on that and you might want to put names on that. So, let's put flags on that. I think Australia into China for lithium, the numbers are maybe 95% of it is going to China right now at the margin because South Korea is the second biggest. Battery manufacturer. I think you've got to see them take share from China under that relationship. South Korea can FTA into the US, so Australia via South Korea to the USA is one axis on the flags and on the companies. Uh, you know, you identify who are the major Korean companies like POSCO uh, that have knowledge and expertise in this area, and they'll be partnering with Australian companies. So then, you know, as you get down to it. What, what you're probably doing, at least what I'm doing, and I think it's just natural, I think other people are doing it as well, is they're saying, okay, well, let's let's carve out the supply chain. You know, we've got downstream, we've got the cars, Tesla, Ford, you know, whomever. Um, upstream from them, we've got the batteries, you know, SK, um, you know, uh, Panasonic with, with Tesla, um, you know, um, cattle in, in in China, Goshen, others. Um, and then going into the batteries, we have those midstream players, you know, Albumali in the US, Tanki, Garfeng, SQM out of Chile. Uh, and then you get to the Australian miners and it becomes a game of, well, who's partnered with who? <laughs> um, and and for us as an example, a concrete example for investors, um, you know, we bought into Azure, which has that very promising, you know, discovery up at End at a little over a dollar, because we were a bit slow, you know, my partner and I were talking about it when it was 30 cents, saying, oh, well, maybe you should buy this on, maybe. <laughs> um, and then we're too late, right? Um, they Everyone's it. too slow on a new yeah, yeah, discovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then we bought in a little over a dollar and it was like, ah, look at each other. No, 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 that makes sense. I mean, let's <laughs> just get a rough estimate of size. Um, there's upside here. But, you know, if you look at it and, and you ask yourself the question, as we did, you know, around the 30 cent mark, well, maybe we should look. Well, that's because SQM had already taken 19.99% the Chilean um, guys who really know lithium well. And remember, um, you know, it's green bushes and all the rest of them. So SQM knows this stuff. And if you talk to geos, they'll tell you, well, we can't be sure until we assay whether we really have lithium in this thing. Um, but certainly you mean sort of stands out in core. If it's grey-white and it looks like spod, then, you know, probably is Um and, and SQM had bought in 20% of that company, uh, just basically on the basis of Rob Chips early your call that, yeah, we'll buy 20% of the company. Um, and you're going to need to do that more and more is assemble who are the likely players in a daisy chain that goes from mine to the end product, work out who's got a good commercial position and really pay close attention to what those players do. And maybe you buy all of them or maybe you just buy some of them. Um, but if you're not following that news flow uh, and you guys, I understand, have got an investment banking background, so you'd be well familiar with this thought process. If you're not thinking who's going to buy who, why, when, where, uh, then you're probably going to get left behind because there's plenty of you mean and other resources out there. But the folks that get up are going to have the right combination of grade, resource
2: size and partnerships and management that knows how to do the right deal, when? Kingsley, we've seen, so on that point of vertical integration, we've seen numerous issues across across WA, like Quinana comes to mind, Mount Holland with SQM and West Farmers come to mind and there's been heaps of delays and issues ramping up. Are these just teething issues in your mind? Is this inevitable in Australia and Western Australia that we're going to see this downstream sooner or later running effectively?
0: Yeah, I think... I think it's probably a teething issue, but but let's step back and recognize that, um, you know, in the West, you know, this the, the, the scale of the price is huge, but 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 as we know from the history of minerals development in, in Western Australia, um, it's a very big place um, and it can be hard to get the labor and materials and other things where you need them, when you need them. And it can also be a little bit hard. To sustain the necessary engineering capability and knowledge um, from one project to the next, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's an expert in, um, you know, corporate strategy, and and he was telling me that you know the biggest problem when you do big projects like Quinana or, or or indeed uh, reshoring and remanufacturing in the United States, the hardest thing really is this aspect of keeping the right knowledgeable people together. From one project to the next project, so you can have an unbroken chain of development to really grow an industry. Um, and we've seen WA surmount that before, um, you know, with the growth of LNG and and the growth of iron ore, and name two. And and we think with the evidence that we see in the marketplace uh, with Qantas is is it is a teething problem, and it will focus attention on the need, the urgent need, I think, to look beyond our traditional focus in geosciences, discovery, exploration and mine engineering uh, to these inorganic chemicals problems of processing. Um, and we're going to really need to to have that post-it note front and centre on the board. Let's learn as much as we can from joint venture partners and from watching what is done in, in the leaders in this area, which is China, Japan, South Korea, see how they do it, um, and really try to learn as quickly as we can how to make sure that our chemical plants are going to operate to spec on time and on a uh, sustainable basis on budget. And, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing with, with these startups in Winada and elsewhere. Um, and you'll recall, of course, you know, earlier Australia had a big go at laterite nickel, and, and that was less than fully successful in, in the early attempt, um, and, and that's for similar reasons. You know, you you've got these high capital expenditure projects, um, with some significant chemical engineering knowledge that's required, um, and so you just just need to be aware of that.
1: I think um, we can we can segue from from lithium to iron ore now, Kingsley, and you've um, you've talked a little bit about the parallels between the two industries as they've emerged over time, um, but one view that you do have. On iron ore is that uh, the the floor price is not sixty dollars, but rather a hundred dollars due to the market structure in China. Can, can, can you speak to that a little bit? What's the market got wrong when it thinks about the floor price?
0: Yeah. So okay. So let's start with the obvious thing. Um, we we do know from the from the reports from from Rio and and Fortescue and and BHP what the what the cost structure is to produce iron ore. Uh, you know, at, at site at mine or or. or free on board, you know, shipped. Um, and so we know that that's significantly lower and, and, and that's recognizing that is what supports the argument that the clearing price should be lower. But but we need to to factor in the geopolitics here is that China's not un, unaware <laughs> that they're very dependent on Australian iron ore. and You know, they keep complaining about price for that reason. Um, and, and that's why we saw that downward pressure from the Chinese authorities talking down the price whenever it gets above 120. Um you know, remember, it went to 220, and they just went completely mental. Um, and and we saw all kinds of measures to get the price back down. So that tells you that there's a ceiling there, which is when the buyer kind of disappears. And we know that that's somewhere in the 120 to 150 range at the margin, particularly for a low growth market like like iron ore globally. Okay, so um, that first price I mentioned, clearing price for, for BHP Rio and so on, that's too low. Um, we know re- roughly where the ceiling is. So we've got to figure out why a hundred, why not 80, why not 90. On a short term basis, it's probably 80 to 90. If you put a line through the chart on an, on an average basis, it's probably about a hundred. Um, so what is setting that price? Well, it's the fact that about 35% of China's needs come domestically and they don't have high grade hematite like we do. Um, they, they have to beneficiate, um, you know, magnetite type ore and others. Um, and they don't necessarily have the same scale of deposit that we have in Australia. So there's a significant part of the cost curve that's higher up as a result. <clears throat> and what we do know is that Chinese steel mills, indeed, steel mills all around the world, they do value these very high grade hematites that Australia can offer, you know, the 63, 65% um, that you get out of smaller ore deposits. Um, and they like to be able to blend that with their other product to, to feed blast furnaces. So we we know that at the margin, you know there are there are two sources of iron ore that are frankly marginal. Um, in Australia, you've got folks like Range Resources with with magnetite. You've got um, Champion Iron up in Labrador in in, in Canada. Uh, you, you've got Phoenix as an emerging player in, in WA, um, and they're all kind of high cost producers around the eighty eighty five dollars or or higher in some cases, um, but they're selling higher value products, so they can they can eke out a living that way. Over in China, um, they're 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 doing the opposite with, with bulk beneficiation of lower grade ores um, that they probably need to blend anyway to get to where they want to be, um, and and that is the other part, the other jaw of that equation in in setting a significant part of the cost curve at prices well above sixty. And that's all we're saying is that. You know, don't think marginal cost of production relates strongly to BHP and, and Rio because they're so far down the cost curve that any demand retrenchment in China never touches the, that portion of the cost curve. It's it's only the higher-up piece. Um, and that's, that's the basis for our argument. And you'll note that, that it's actually quite hard to assemble a proper cost curve here that had full accounting for that because we're talking about roughly 30 odd percent of the Chinese market being very opaque um, and so it's really really hard to know what that is but we also know just like FedEx in Australia the Chinese who are trying to mine these deposits they've got big logistical costs to move the stuff around as well uh, because they don't have you know the benefit of the Pilbara and that's no doubt why they're prepared to put a lot of money into Simandu and elsewhere uh, to try to break this nexus and get their own, if you will, captive supply of, of high-grade material so that so that, that structure changes. If that happens in a big way so that you were less reliant on Chinese domestic sources, then that whole cost curve structure would change. And I don't think those bears who would say $60 is where it should be, that would be proven to be correct, but that hasn't happened yet.
2: So that's why we say it's at least $20 to $30, if not $40 higher than that. Kingsley, you mentioned some of the, the higher grade producers and a company we've spoken about in the past that comes to mind is Mount Gibson. And this is you know somewhat of a, a side note to the broader point on iron ore, but they obviously had had the history with the the pit getting flooded. And I want to hear how you think about and hedge tail risks and black swans like that in in your investment process.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. In the case of Mount Gibson, I can, I, I can come clean, you know, full disclosure, um, we, we actually owned the stock um, before the pit flooded, um, and, and therefore, I have to say that in, the, in that instance, we didn't hedge because it never occurred to us that something like that, like that might happen. Um, but you know that's normal in investment plan. When it does happen um, you, and you're not hedged, that's because you didn't anticipate that that could happen. Um, and, and so there are the anticipated problems and there are the unanticipated problems. In in terms of our portfolio structures, um, we don't actively hedge like a uh, producer might. So if you look at a Fenix, they did some very successful hedging at higher iron ore prices, and that was a very good move for them. Uh, and they did that because they've got short mine life, and therefore they can do the economics at the margin of hedging, and it makes a lot of sense. As portfolio managers, we, we don't hedge in that way. Um, in fact, mostly we prefer producers to be unhedged. Uh, but as I just mentioned, we can see rationale for doing it when you have that sort of situation um so the way that we hedge then is we, we try to hedge by commodity uh, by jurisdiction um you know by, by mine deposit more than um than you know in taking any active position in the commodities markets um, that, that's our preferred thing um and that's just because we know how to do that <laughs> and diversification is is relatively easy to present to investors as your rationale um, and your process. Or managing risk, so position size in any individual name, appropriate hedging. I can recall a previous, you know, life, if you will, as a portfolio manager running the team, running a very large book of global uh, investments. Um, some people might remember Deepwater Horizon when there was the explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we happened at that time to own all three companies that were at the centre of the problem, um, and and you know we couldn't know that the thing was going to blow up in the way that it did. Um, uh, but we owned all three companies. But I'm happy to say that whilst we're unhappy to report to our investors that we owned all three companies, our position sizing was such that it had very little effect on the overall portfolio. Uh, and so we were able to to actually do that. On other occasions, it hasn't worked out so well. And that's why we continue uh, to emphasize diversification as the main way to hedge. Uh, and recognizing that um, we don't, you know, nobody... We, we can all be confident in our statements, um, and you know anyone who's followed me over the years knows that I can always be terribly, terribly confident in my view on something. Um, but we're also quite aware that there's many things that can change in the world that, that mean that what you thought yesterday, you no longer think about the future. Um, and therefore, diversification is, is, to our minds,
1: the best way to hedge. Touching on um, opaque market, Visibility in, in China, uh, we're kind of keen to to look at graphite. Um, I, I know this is um, yeah. a commodity that you know you've got some some thoughts around, and um, mm-hmm. as we understand that market, it's really 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 challenging to have any good insight um, to that market yep. in China. So, uh, right. uh, given that a large there's a large array of uh, you know graphite hopefuls on. The ASX and they relate, you know, pertain to Australian investors. H- how can they think about and make sense of that very opaque market dynamic?
0: Yeah, that's that's a, a really, really good question. And we struggle with it in China to really understand the synthetic graphite market and where the stuff's coming from and what's happening. And if I might use um, an adjacent example of rare earths, it's a little bit the same with the rare earths, is that there's a lot of separation plants in China. Um, and it can be really difficult to understand the unit economics, uh, which I think is the problem in trying to come up with forecasts for graphite price. Okay, um, is that if you if you don't have good data and you don't know the unit economics for um, production at the margin, it's hard to construct the cost curve, and th- and then it's really hard to work out what exactly are the swing producers and and what the incentive structures are. That's one of the key things. So. In China, is graphite being produced for some kind of social purpose, um, or, or, or is it ultimately set at the margin in, in, in selling price by uh, you know, need, uh, commercial need? Um, now, that's just the way things are, so to answer your question directly, what should producers be doing? We think that vertical integration is one strategy which shows a lot of promise in these opaque markets. And the reason I say that is, remember, vertical integration is that strategy where you try to own bits of the supply chain, maybe not all of it, but bits of it where the extent of your control is large enough in you know different steps of the production chain um, that you effectively you, you don't care so much about an intermediate price. So if there's an intermediate good like the, the sort of kind of graphite that might go to an anode manufacturer or to somebody who prepares it to go to an anode manufacturer. If you own those pieces, then you can observe a market that you sell into for the anode material as finished product. So if you own enough of your upstream chain, you can get visibility on your cost of production to know that you'll be profitably operating a mine, like for example, what CERA Resources is, uh, is, is attempting to do and going upstream. Um, and then you just need to make sure that you cycle your production rate in order to keep your total vertically integrated operation profitable. And we have seen signs of this already, not in graphite, but, uh, you would have seen with the Linus announcement, um, the prices are too low. So they will be stock stockpiling NDPR material, uh, so that they can deliver it against, uh, their client needs in Japan. So that's an example of, um, the kind of, shall we say, explicitly non-market behavior, um, we see it in China Bang. all the time. Yep, <laughs> is the smart thing to do. Totally, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But but yeah, um, you can only do it when you have, um, yeah, like a a, a a market that does not have perfect competition to say the least. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And and uh, you know, if you think of of uh, Tesla, you know, Musk went out early to his credit with a plan to say, well, we're going to be vertically integrated. Why? Because we're in a rapidly developing industry technology wise so we'll keep in house the bits that make sense to keep in house and we'll put out of house those that you know we think we'd be comfortable from buying from from anybody and he was making the point that we need to innovate rapidly so the things that we're going to keep in house are those things where we know we're going to have our own specification that we discovered from being in business doing this right um, and, and we'll learn faster than other people which bits should be in-house and which people, which bits should be outside-house. Um, and that's smart, right? right? And it's not you. It's what Henry Ford did back in the, in the early days of, of motor vehicles. It's what Linus is doing now, holding some material offline. Um, it's what we would expect to see. The, you can run into problems with trade rules and so on, but I think the way things are going with trade tariffs and so on you're kind of not worried anymore by that. You just need to make sure that you don't have transfer pricing problems with taxation. Um, that your customers ultimately are happy, because if customers aren't happy, you won't have business.
2: Kingsley, conscious of your time, there's a few more topics we want to quickly touch on. So one of them is groupthink, something you've written about in the past, and the the pitfalls of groupthink. And you know something we at Money Mind discuss is the the kind of need to be a uh, contrarian, especially in, in commodities and investing. So just just a nice and basic question on this one. How how do you avoid groupthink as an investor?
0: Yeah, you have to question things, especially yourself. Um yeah. and, and I think you have to remind yourself of when when you know you've you've made mistakes and learned from them. Um and and then the other dimension of the groupthink is is actually the scientific background that 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 I mentioned earlier is that Having critical thinking skills, wherever you obtain them from or or however you develop them, is really important. So if there's a commonly stated assertion, um, you need to question whether that's really correct. So for example, it's been commonly asserted uh, that the US is short of rare earths and that could be posing a big problem um, in respect of reliance on China. Actually, if you do the math and you look at the trade data and you look at the MP materials output, uh, you can certainly make a case they're short of heavy rare earths, which is why the Department of Defense is financing Linus to build that plan, but they're most definitely not short of light railroads. And in fact, if you look at the trade balance, and this is an example of avoiding groupthink, um, the US is a net exporter to China of NDPR, the magnet materials, uh, to the chain of about, by our, our estimates, about 4,800 tonnes a year out of 6,600 tonnes produced out of uh, Mountain Pass. So that's how you avoid groupthink. You, you go ask yourself, well, is that really right? <laughs> I can see this is mine. Where's the stuff going to? That's all public knowledge. You, you go do the research, then you ask yourself the question: Well, is there any other source of information I can use to construct the trade balance I just mentioned? And indeed, there is. Um, if you use the uh, U.S. trade data, which is very good, and uh, this might surprise some people, if you use the China customs data, which is also very good, um, then you can match up, you know, pretty much pound for pound what's going out, what's coming in. Um, and you can also recognise what the category of material is, and that's how you avoid groupthink. You you actually do the research, um, with a critical view. Um, you don't uh, get lost in crazy conspiracy theories. As much fun as it might be to get Chat GPT to invent them, um, but uh, you, you you do that research, um, and and then you form a view. And then of course you need to second che- you need to check that, right? So when I go around talking to company executives in railroads for example you know i'll be asking them questions to see how they're going and not leading questions more giving them an opportunity to express how they're doing on negotiating offtake in different places like south korea japan united states or europe and you will glean information from those questions that either supports or refutes uh, your hypothesis and that's a continual process you just keep doing that and that's how you would group things.
1: I'm sure. Uh, also being based in Canberra, you'll do just fine avoiding the group friend, the group think of the uh, Melbourne and Sydney fundies, mate. So, <laughs> yeah, we just have the group think of our politicians. Um, <laughs> but, the, but yeah, look, that's look.
0: I consciously, when I when my wife and I moved here, because I had been a student here, yeah, I'm not from here, I'm from Melbourne, um, and we spent many years in Sydney, but I consciously was reminded of Warren Buffett's edict that, yeah, well, in Nebraska, you didn't have all that noise, right?
1: Oh. I love and it. So he's quite happy staying there, and I can see why now. Having been in Canberra for three years, we hear the same rhetoric f- from the uh, Cottesloe-based fund managers here, avoiding West Perth.
0: <laughs> ah, ah, there you go. I know where to
2: avoid now. Oh, I like <laughs> to West Perth. Just stay away, right, <laughs> Kingsley? We'd love to finish with a bit of a quick fire round. And how we're going to structure this one today is getting your take on whether what we're going to say is overrated. Or underrated and whether you can, yep. you know, get that out in one word or one sentence. So Trav, so start okay. us off.
1: Yeah, quick fire. Overrated or under, under under overrated or underrated. Okay. Going downstream in lithium in Australia.
2: Underrated. Chalice's Julema's Project. Julema project, if you're familiar with that one. Overrated. Azure Minerals. Underrated. The, the hype around copper at the moment. Underrated. Niobium. Overrated. Patriot battery metals. Mm. Overrated. Oh, dreadnought. Underrated. Direct lithium extraction or DLE.
0: Uh, that's another cool one. Underrated. Tin. Underrated.
1: Graphite.
2: Overrated. Ramifications of the IRA. Underrated. Long term lithium price forecasts. <laughs> Overrated.
1: Linus. Oh, underrated. Lucky
2: last IGO.
1: Oh, underrated. Oh, brilliant. Like you're the first person we've had on that's um, actually given succinct dances when we've asked for a uh, rapid-fire
2: round, so well done.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kingsley, I found that awesome. Thank you so much for uh, coming on, making the time for us. We really appreciated that, and we think the the money miners will get a lot of value from from the discussion we had.
0: Oh, a lot of pleasure. I think you're doing a great job, guys. Um, it's it's so nice of you to reach out, and um, I think that this format is, is just wonderful. I like it. Um, you know, I, I do drone on